Actually, the older I get, the more gun-shy I have become. In some ways, when people ask me my opinion. I have learned that before I answer recently, before I answer questions, I ask the question, could I get your permission to tell what I think is the truth? I have been asking that more and more recently. Especially when I meet with other pastors, they'll ask me things about why is the church growing or not growing? Do you mind if I tell you what I think is the truth? I ask it because as Jack Nicholson, that brilliant philosopher once said, in A Few Good Men, people just can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. The truth is really what I have found, especially the last 10 years, the truth is really not wanted anymore. It's really not wanted. The truth is heavy. It's like a brick that lands with a thud in the middle of a conversation, and sometimes it stops conversation, where white lies and sentimentalisms, where you give nice observations, general statements of encouragement and agreement, those float down nice and soft on the velvet soft blanket of conversation. But man, you tell the truth and, all right, see you later, we're done. Often people don't know what they are saying when they say, sure, I'd love to hear what you really think on this. So I tell them and they never invite me back. I wonder why. Or, uh, well, at least I still have my dog. He's always, <laughs> he's a nice guy. But I realize my dog doesn't understand English and that's probably why he hangs around often. But um, today... Today, today is sort of, it, to me, it's very exciting, the book of Luke, because it's the first public appearance of Christ in ministry in the book of Luke. It starts off with amazing success. Jesus is popular. I mean, he is attractive. He's compelling. Starts off with smiles, handshakes. That is until Jesus starts talking tells the truth. Because as I said earlier, and if you remember, people can't handle the truth. And that's why the title is, You Can't Handle the Truth. If you could open up to Luke 4, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 30. The first public ministry of Jesus in the book of Luke. I really love that Texas hat. I just have to tell you, Claudia, I really like that. That looks sharp. Anyhow, Luke 4, 14. It begins by saying, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And the NIV, he's praised everywhere he goes. They love him. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, this is from Isaiah 61. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, 
gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. Because sitting down is the position of preaching in the Jewish community, not standing. Standing is in reference to showing reverence to God's word. Sitting is when he's getting ready to teach. That's why he sat down. So that's why it says, And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began saying to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth. I tell you, there were many window, widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, drove them out of the town, and brought them to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw them down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So this is the story, and the title is People Can't Handle the Truth. And so the general flow is going to be simple. I'm going to talk, I just want you to imagine the scene, and I'm going to ask you to listen to his words. And then just watch the reaction of the people. It's very odd to me. This is an odd passage. Because it goes from it goes from just, oh, I love this guy, to I want to kill him. Like in a matter of seconds. And the question is why? That's really our question. Why does that happen? Because it's very puzzling, actually. If you if you really kind of comprehend what's happening. So let's imagine what's going on. For 30 years prior to this narrative, I want you to imagine the person of Jesus Christ. For 30 years prior to this narrative, he grew up in the home of a carpenter. So that means he had calloused hands. That means he lived a life of heavy lifting. A carpenter at the time, he worked with wood, but he worked primarily with stone too. So you could say he was a carpenter and a mason. He was a builder. It's blue collar. Probably had a big beard, so guys think they're cool sporting those big beards. He probably had one of those beards. He probably had big shoulders. That was something that always was amazing about my dad, where his big shoulders. I just loved grabbing his neck and hanging on his big shoulders. I bet you Christ had big shoulders. For the last two months prior to this story, he was wrestling with Satan mentally physically, emotionally, spiritually, with Satan in the desert. So that means he was sun-bronzed, battle-tested. He was fearless. He was fearless. Fearless. He just defeated Satan. He defeated him. Satan left him. So here he comes, striding out of the desert. He actually went to... Um, they believe, up the Jordan River, up to the Sea of Galilee. He was there a while, and then he's coming back home. This portrait of a powerful man. 
I guarantee you he was the rage. He was the talk of the town. If you ever have a hero coming out of your town that everybody's talking about, he's fascinating. Scholars try to bring a comprehensive chronology up to this point. They say some things have already taken place. He already early on met some of his disciples. He already talked to them. Remember he met Nathaniel under the tree and the guy said, how did you know I was under the tree? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He already healed a royal official son, a royal official from the big city of Capernaum, north of Galilee. He went up to Jesus and said, can you heal my son? And he did. He already met the woman at the well. You remember the story of the woman at the well? That already took place. So he already was attracting crowds. This guy's shocking. And this is relevant to Nazareth. He already performed the wedding feast at Cana where he turned water into wine because Nazareth to Cana is a few couple short jaunts over a couple hills. So you know Nazareth, his hometown, knows that he is he's fascinating. The news, was, the news of Nazareth's famous son was spreading like wildfire. Look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and report about him went out through all the surrounding country. So he's front page news. Not just that, it says he taught in their synagogues, meaning he was probably getting invite after invite to go to the different synagogues around Galilee, Capernaum, um, Bethsaida, town where Mary Magdalene was from. He's going to different synagogues, teaching in them, and it said he was glorified by all. Meaning, every time he spoke at church, wow, this guy's amazing. Let's go hear him. Personally, I think Jesus must have been, he must have been captivating. We don't talk too much about his person, but I'll bet you if he walked in here, he would be striking. I think he'd be striking not just by his looks. Like he was, you know, he's in the desert for a while. Just He had to be just a, a picture of strength. But also, he was, he had, he was completely completely at home in himself. He had no insecurity. Have you ever been around somebody that's fine in who they are? They don't need to prove anything. You're attracted to them. He was, according to Psalm 45, we're going to read it in a little bit, he was the most joyful man that ever lived. He probably laughed like crazy. He, he probably was just happy. He's happy. Never oppressed. Why would he be oppressed? He just took on Satan and defeated him. He was... Totally genuine because, remember, he's God, so he never lies. He's not a hypocrite, so he doesn't hide. Who you meet, you, you knew, people knew him. And I think he was fearsome. I think he was so confident in who he was, you couldn't shake him. You couldn't intimidate him. He just, he just had a UFC fight with Satan and defeated him, so you couldn't intimidate him. There's really only one movie scene that I think really captures a little taste of Jesus. There's all these movies that have come out, try to portray Jesus. I remember there was one in the 1950s where Jesus had red hair and he talked kind of like that. That's not Jesus. There was a Jesus where they tried to make a happy Jesus where he's always laughing. <laughs> like a, he's a, that's not him. There's one that I think they did a great job. If you've ever seen the old Ben-Hur, it's the old movie of Ben-Hur. They never showed his face. 
But there's this one scene where Charlton Heston, he's, this, he's been here, he's, he's like a slave, and he's going through this town of Nazareth, and you see this carpenter shop with this silhouetted figure in there, and you know who that is. And, and uh, Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston, he's thirsty. He wants some water, and a Roman soldier pushes him down on the ground and doesn't give him any water because he thinks he's just trying to intimidate him. And there, Charlton Heston's on the ground. You see this hand lift his face up, and you see him pouring water in his sun-parched lips. And all of a sudden, a Roman guard is like, Hey, get away from that man! And all of a sudden, you just see the guy who's giving Charlton Heston water, he stands up and he looks at the Roman guard. And the Roman guard looks at him. And he doesn't say anything, but he just backs away. I think that's who Jesus was. You could, he was power and a man of strength. He was, I think he was captivating. Well, this striding hero, Jesus, is coming home. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Came to the town he knew well. He knew the sights, he knew the sounds, he knew the smells, and he knew the people he grew up with. He knows this place. He came home. He grew up here. It even says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So he every Saturday, every Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, and so I'm sure he's familiar with all the faces. They know him. They know him. But something's different about him. There's something very intriguing. Even Luke senses it. One commentator says there's drama in the way Luke writes it. Look at verse at the end of verse 16. It says, okay, so Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. Some people think that he was invited to read because the news spread around, so they always invited somebody to come and speak. Be kind of like us at our church. We hear somebody's in. Hey, will you come and speak to us? And in the synagogue, they get up and speak and they have a kind of a question-answer, rabbinical form. So he gets up and he it says he stood up. The scroll was handed to him. It's Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll. And then he reads Isaiah 61, we'll talk about in a minute. Then it says, after he unrolled the scroll, read it, he rolled it back up, handed it back, he sat down. So he stood up, handed the scroll, opened the scroll, closed the scroll, handed the scroll, sat down. And then it says, in verse 20, and the eyes of all were fixed. There's anticipation. Man, this guy's got something to say. The eyes of everyone were on him. He was fascinating. They had to hear what he said, and here's what he says. So let's listen. Now we saw what we imagined. Now let's listen to what he has to say, because what he has to say is really weird if you're listening to this. He just read Isaiah 61, and then he says in the verse 21, today, right now, this, this period, this scripture, the one I just read, has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this moment, I'm the one who you've been waiting for. It's me. I'm the guy that the Spirit of God is in to set people, all people, including the poor, blind, prisoner, the oppressed. I'm here to set them free. 
and the favor of God is now upon you. That's what verse 19 says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So Jesus is saying, what you're hearing is being fulfilled because I'm the fulfillment of this. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's freedom to those in jail. Recovering of sight to blind. Set free those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor is God's good graces. And what he's saying is, I am evidence that his good graces are now here. I am the proof things are now different. God has been stone cold silent 400 years up to this time. And now he's ready to just open his arms to all. This, this is unheard of. And the initial reaction is amazement. Look at what they say. And it says, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. I want you to go to Psalm 45 too. I, I, this is a messianic psalm. I mean, it's a prophecy about what Jesus would be like. It's a wedding psalm. But it's also a dual meaning. It's a prediction of what Jesus will be like. Listen to Psalm 45. One says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe or a ready writer. Verse 2. This is what is specifically about Jesus. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. He's fascinating. He's captivating. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So, Jesus is this captivating man whose God's grace is infused in his words and his blessing is upon him. That's exactly what's happening here in Luke 4. John 1 says this in verse 17, The law has come through Moses, but grace and peace have come through the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? It's the extended kindness of God. That's what it is. He wants to reach out to those who are not the kind of people we would think a perfect God would reach, reach out to. He wants to reach out to everybody, including the poor, the oppressed, and the blind. God's kindness is now here in Christ, the strident, suntan hero. There's much discussion concerning the statement Isaiah preached good news to the poor. Who are the poor? Poor is a categorization of the people that he sent to reach. There's a lot of discussion, almost argument. This, this is verse 18 I'm looking at where it says, Proclaim good news to the poor. So, who are the poor? On one side, you have the poor, the financially oppressed, those who are just have no means. They've been, they've been pushed down by an evil government. Some people say the poor are those who are sinners, spiritually poor. So are they the economic poor, the spiritually poor? And I think this has been hijacked by politics, by how do we figure this out? When the truth of the matter is to the people listening, it means something completely different than just trying to figure out is it talking about the rich and poor. 
He's talking to a Jewish community that only allows people in if you meet their criteria. Their criteria of religion, law, culture. Poor to them is anyone that is, a, is at a disadvantage, at a diminished status, not really able to participate and be accepted in general society. People are disenfranchised, pushed out on the margins, unwanted. They're outcasts. They are people that aren't like us, and I don't want them in. They're the unclean. How do I know that? Because he gives two examples. In verse 26, Jesus talks about this guy during the days of Elijah where a great famine came over all the land. Elijah wasn't sent to any of the Israelites, but only to this widow woman in Zarephath. She's a Gentile widow. She's poor, destitute, and she's outside the community of God's people. And then it goes on to verse 27. This guy Naaman. Naaman was actually rich, but he was leprous and he was a Syrian. He had leprosy, which was unclean, and he was a Gentile. These are those who the Jews did not want. They were the unclean. Those who are the most separated from God. Jesus is now saying, I've come to set them free. I'm for them. If you look at verse 19, it's a fascinating phrase. And it says, not only have I come to set them free. And, he's, and it's like he's comparing taking care of the poor, like giving sight to the blind. People who are wandering around and they don't know where they're going. Now they, now they know what. Now they're invited in to see. But verse 19 says, I'm also here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is direct reference to Leviticus 25.10, the year of Jubilee. If you know anything about the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, the Jews were supposed to give back all the property that people owed. So if somebody went in debt and they sold their property, you're to give it back to them. If somebody went because they couldn't pay a bill, they became an indentured servant. At the 50th year, you forgive all the debts. You let them back home. Everything's forgiven. It's all done. Or let's just rejoice. Jubilee is a time when all debts are canceled. Everybody gets everything back. That's what he's saying. I'm here to bring Jubilee to everybody. This, honestly, this is great news. Have you ever felt excluded from God's favor? What Jesus is saying, you don't have to anymore. Have you ever felt like you're a debtor to God, like you just owe the world? You can't pay anything back? He's saying, don't worry about it. It's done. Now that Jesus has arrived, grace is here. Kindness is here. This is amazing news. That's why they're so excited. It's amazing news. But I want you to watch because... It's really weird. At first hearing, they like it, but then all of a sudden they hate it. Why? Why would anybody hate this message? Why would anybody hate this message? It doesn't make sense. Something about it to the people rubs them the wrong way. If you look in verse 22, it says, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, saying, Okay. But then they started saying, is this not Joseph's son? From that phrase on, everything changes. Before they said that phrase, they were all happy. After that phrase, they get ticked off. Why? 
It, it fascinates scholars. Some scholars believe that statement there, is this not Joseph's son? Was actually, they were, wow, this is, isn't this Joseph's son? Is almost, hey, we have admiration for the local hero. Other scholars are saying, ah, I'm not sure if they're happy about this. It's as, as if he's, he's a kind of a cocky little lad coming in trying to tell us that, man, now I'm the guy. Like, who are you? You grew up in our town. We know who you are. Don't put on airs. I think really what's happening, they begin, there's this new sense that Jesus is different. He is not somebody to be trifled with. He's dangerous. He's no longer Joseph's little gopher. Do you know what a gopher? Joseph's a carpenter. Jesus was Joseph's gopher. Joseph, I know. I, I need the. I need the the shaving tool to to sand this thing. Well, Dad, where is it? It's up on the top shelf. You know, I put it up there. Did you ever have your dad tell you where all his tools are? You come back, Dad. I don't know where the tools are. Come on, it's up on the top shelf. I worked for my brother-in-law Jim. He was a carpenter. I was his gopher. He never let me ever measure or cut. All I had to do is carry the wood, mix the mortar, get the bricks. I was his gopher. And then when the general contractors would come in, they wouldn't even look at me. They'd just talk to him because he was the man in charge. I bet you Jesus was sort of seen like that. He's Joseph's son. But now he's come back after fighting in the desert, and he's different. And he's filled with the Spirit. And when people are filled with the Spirit, oh boy, they're dangerous. They're dangerous, dangerous people. When they're really filled with the Spirit, there's a heaviness to them. Their words have a heaviness. They're not just saying trivial things anymore. They're not just trifling with being nice. They, they're different. Did you ever meet somebody who just was transformed by God and their words are heavy all of a sudden? Most of the time we get in these normal conversations and we're, we know what we're supposed to say. How are you doing? Doing good. I'll give you a call. All right, see you later. Wasn't that a cool draft? Yeah, that was really cool. But then you get somebody who all of a sudden is transformed by God. How you doing? Man, I'm really broken for my family. You know what I mean? And I need to change. I need to... Why, are you, why are you making such a big deal about life? Can't we just kind of have the same niceties? So uh, the next thing out of Jesus' mouth are statements that become true truth to them. And it's dangerous because truth exposes reality. That's the point of it. Truth, from a prophet, is to expose the real situation. And they don't like it. Listen to what he says in verse... He begins here, verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you'll quote me. This is what he's saying. You're going to quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. They're basically saying... All right, you're going to Capernaum. You're going out and healing everybody out there. Why don't you take care of your people first? Huh? And then he's going to say, well, truly I say to you, I'm telling you the truth. Truth is dangerous. Truly I say to you, no prophet, no truth teller really is wanted or is acceptable in his hometown. People don't like it. And then he goes in verse 25, but I'm telling you the truth. Back in the day of Israel... When the heavens were shut, you know who God sent Elijah to? This widow of Zarephath. She's a Gentile. That's who she went to, basically saying, 
because Elisha, they didn't, his own people didn't really want him, so God sent him to the people they really want. And then he goes in 27, Elisha, Elisha was none of his people, none of them was cleansed, but except for Naaman. He was sent to Naaman because Naaman would listen. And then verse 28 says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were mad. They are so furious. It even says they rose up in verse 29 to kill him. Some said they wanted to grab him. There was some speculate, were there cliffs that they could throw him off? Commentators are like, this is probably another way for saying they wanted to throw him down a hill and just stone him, throw rocks at him. They were so mad at him that here's this guy that they were praising a minute ago to wanting to kill him. And I'm telling you, I, what is the problem? Why? Why? But Why? I think that's the question. Why does the truth hurt? After thinking long and hard on this, i tell you, in my own life, I've seen this happen. Have you ever seen the emotional flip-flop where you knew somebody, they're your best friends, and you told them the truth, Boyd, and then they never want to talk to you again? As a pastor, it happens like you wouldn't believe. Like there were people I ministered to them for four or five years, and they loved your preaching, they like who you are, find out something about them. They come into your office, you kind of confront them, and then they'll never talk to you again. They leave the church and they say, you know, that church, it's just the Spirit of God's left. You see them at open houses, they don't even look at you. Like, what happened? Why does the truth hurt? And I think it's because of this. Jesus, prophets, truth tellers, are a threat to the way you're living. They're a threat. If you are going to continue with Jesus, I, I like what one person said, when you invite Jesus into your life, you're inviting him into your house and he's going to start changing the wallpaper, the picture frames, what you, what you put on the TV in your own house. You no longer can just live comfortably the way you've been. He's going to start changing you. He's a threat. He's a threat to your identity, the identity that you have worked so hard to, to establish in your culture, and he's a threat to everything you've lived for, especially thinking, this is how I gain favor with God. I, I gain favor with God by going to church every Sunday, wearing a tie, and singing the right songs, and then I go home. But Jesus says, no, that's really not what righteousness is. You know what righteousness is? It's uh, loving people in the trailer park. It's funny, as we had a deacon's elder meeting, and one of the deacons said, have you ever been to the trailer park in the summer? Have you ever, have you ever seen how needy some of those people are? And do we ever talk to them, invite them? Ever? What is a cultural identity? I think we know in our culture who the, who, who the people are that are important. We know the families. We know the positions, the, the jobs that really we need to give importance to. We also know who's kind of the outcast and why are you talking to them? Why do you care about them? Because, because Jesus loves 
He loves everybody. Everybody is made in his image. Everybody. Even the Muslim is made in his image. Everybody. Even the person of a different race is made in his image. Even the poor person who isn't spending his money well is made in his image. And needs to be set free. They're made in his image. And he, C.S. Lewis once said it like this, if we could see people after they're redeemed, what they're going to look like in heaven, we would almost want to bow down and worship them because they're going to be so awesome in character and being. We're going to be like mighty, we're going to be mighty, mighty people in heaven. Immortal. Indestructible. And everybody who has Christ in their life will be like that in heaven. That's who God wants us to reach all people because that's where the real life is, the heavenly life. Right now, it's temporary. And so I think the reason, Boyd, why they were so mad is because he's coming into a Jewish culture saying, everything you've lived for trying to be a good Jew, that's not it. The law is not it. It's me worshiping God through Christ. It's, here's here's uh, one, per, one writer puts it like this. In our identification with Christ as our Savior, we are also required to identify with the needy, the poor, the oppressed, and the captives. The Nazarites wanted Jesus to identify with them. They wanted Jesus to serve them. Uh, why don't you come and heal your own people? Don't go to Capernaum. Do the stuff here. Just stay here. We want you to meet our needs. But they refused to identify themselves with sin sinful Gentiles in their need for salvation and forgiveness. Christ's rebuke of Peter, and um, I'm sorry, Christ's identification with fallen humanity requires that the church also identify and associate with the humble. This does not mean we shun the rich as the rich, but only that we do not favor the rich because they are rich. Jesus associated with the poor, the sick, and sinners, and thus almost immediately offended the self-righteous. As we identify with Christ, we must also identify with those whom he associated and identified, namely those who were in need and acknowledged it and sought his grace. Jared read that prayer, the two prayers. That was interesting he read that. The prayer of the righteous Pharisee who said, Thank you, God, I'm not like anybody else. And the prayer of the woeful sinner, Dear God, I know you're probably not even listening to me. That's the one Jesus wants to give favor to. I want you to go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33. I think this, this is a great encapsulation of what's happening and why they're mad at him. Ezekiel 33, 30 to 33. Okay, so Ezekiel's a prophet. Remember said Jesus said a prophet's not one in his own hometown. Ezekiel's preaching in Jerusalem. It says, As you, as for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the house, say to one another, each to his brother, Hey, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they're saying, Let's go hear Ezekiel. He speaks God's word. And they came to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say. 
but they don't do it. That's a, that lands like a brick. They hear what you say, home, but they don't do it. As if that's a really bad thing. Because it is. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. There's the brick again. Home. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So what he's saying is he's saying the audience in Jerusalem at that time loved to listen to him. Like It's not like they don't like listening to a good prophet. It's not like they didn't like listening to Jesus. All his words were gracious, but then change. You want me to do it? Wait a minute. That's different. I once read that the way that Americans view God is he's a therapist and he's a butler. As a therapist, he's here to make me feel good about me and he's my butler, meaning he serves my needs and expectations. But what Jesus came for is he came for people who are ready to follow him. Pick up the cross, deny themselves, and follow him. That's different. That's a different God. That's a different God. Here's what I would say is when you read scriptures and when you hear a sermon... You can either respond to it in humility or get angry and say, man, I don't like that truth. I don't like that he wants me to love the unlovely, wants me to love people that are the poor or even people that aren't in my culture. Why doesn't he just give me what God has for me, which are nice things? The next slide I just wrote, if you start to get angry, go ahead and flip it. If you get angry at God instead of respond to him, it says in this verse, he will slip away. He slipped away from their midst. They wanted to kill him. Did he, was he rescued providentially? I think there's some of that. But they no longer had him in town. They were done. He didn't perform any miracles in Nazareth because they didn't believe by faith. They didn't want him. In the same way, when we're confronted with truth, so I would say this, like here's some truth that we as the deacons, we are talking about, what do we want in this church? We would love to see people really start um, having joy in God. We would love to see people all participate in this church where Ken doesn't need to say, we need more teachers. We have a, we have, in a three to four week period, we have about a thousand people to come to this church, but just the same people teach. We can get guilty and mad about that, but what we would like is people from the inside to want to participate and give. We want people to be part of our community, to actually reach out in our community, to, to help out at some of the carnivals and the fairs and just get to know people in our community instead of always just coming here and hiding. We, we have a desire for people to just really love sacri being sacrificial. Well, how do we do that? And one, one deacon said, we can't do that. The Spirit of God has to do that. He has to do that. Like, I would love, like tonight, I'd love people to come back tonight. I don't want to guilt people in there, but people like their TV shows. They really do. They just do. They like to sit on a couch on Sunday afternoon and eat a lot of food. But we have people that are willing to go on short-term missions. 
ah, but I got my shows on tonight. I want to I kind of follow up on the draft. And we sort of get caught up in things that matter. <laughs> they don't matter at all. We, I got families here that just need people to disciple them. I don't want to get, I don't want to get involved with anybody because I got a weekend up north to go fishing. I don't want to get involved. I don't, I don't want to ask, I don't want to ask hard questions because if I ask hard questions, people are going to tell me their need and I might have to financially give. I don't want to do that. It's hard to be a Christian. It just is. And Jesus says, Jesus gave everything to save people. I, I think, we think he gave everything to save me, and once I'm saved, I'm good. But that's not why he came. He came to get everybody prepared for his second coming. He's coming. I don't know what that means to you. I, I know I do a poor job. I wish I did better. I wish I wasn't so lazy. But I do know, like you, like you go to the hospital, you see there's people dying all the time. I mean, this life is quick, but Chris, you're rambling. I know, because I don't know why they got so mad. It's still frustrating to me. Why did they get so mad at Jesus? Because somehow he came to say, you got to change. Oh, and they didn't like that. And we don't like that. I don't like that. Anyhow, let me pray. You do what you want with that. I don't know what. I don't know what it is. Normally you're supposed to have seven application points. That's what the good preaching is supposed to do. This isn't good preaching. This is really bad preaching. All I know is you have to be you have to ask yourself, go home and ask yourself, why were they so mad? Do I get that mad? What were they mad about? Because he has come to make you angry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Bible. I don't understand it sometimes. I don't. Your son is amazing. He's power incarnate. He's, but boy, does he love everybody. Help me to love people like that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.